Take a network break. Sample our fine selection of virtual donuts as we traipse through the week's IT news. We've got stories today on Intel's DPU roadmap, Juniper bringing Contrail to Kubernetes, new Wi-Fi capabilities from Cisco, and more. We're sponsored in part by Nokia and its digital sandbox. It's part of Nokia's fabric services system for data center network automation. To get more details about how the digital sandbox enables intent-based networking, listen to the May 9th Tech Byte we recorded with Nokia, and you can go to nokia.ly slash fabric-services-system to learn more. Stick around after the news. We've got a sponsored Tech Byte conversation with Cloudflare about how to simplify and secure your WAN architecture with Cloudflare's Magic WAN, its firewall, and integrations with SD-WAN. Uh, last but not least, check out Heavy Strategy with Greg Farrow and Jonah Till Johnston from Numerities Research. It's a uh, analysis show. Greg, how would you categorize it? Well, it's more looking at strategic aspects like, you know, what do you want to talk about? Low code? Do you want to talk about career development? Do you want to talk about hiring and firing? So it's if we talk about technology, it's more from the strategy. What would you buy? Why would you buy it? Uh, and Jonah, of course, is a well-known, well-respected analyst who's been working in the industry for many, many years. She really knows a thing. Um, and then I bring my my sort of whatever it is that I have, I bring with me. Uh, it's been put pretty well received. Um, we have, you know, but we'd like to get it going a bit further, a bit growing. And a lot of people have said some pretty good things about it. So the idea here is to think about the strategy aspect, not the technology aspect as the primary angle. And it's uh, less than 30 minutes is our goal. So short and sharp, not meant to sort of, take a like a like a long shot sort of like network break fast and and quick right and it's also not a circle of agreement where you both agree with each other's points you actually will debate and get into issues you do it in a friendly respectful way but there's some back and forth yeah the goal is to argue <laughs> it's literally <laughs> what we said <laughs> sometimes we'll just argue with each other for the sake of arguing to get two sides <laughs> of a debate uh, and the thing to note is that heavy strategy is not part of our bulk feed so if you're sitting on the fat pipe subscribe to our fat pipe or our full feed uh, we won't be putting any more. We have new channels coming into the Packet Pushes network in the months ahead, but they won't be going into the full feed because people have told us there's too much in there already. Uh, if you don't like that or if you would like to see that, you know, by all means, give us some follow-up at packetpushes.net slash fu. Um, but you do have to go and subscribe to Heavy Strategy separately. So just type the words Heavy Strategy into your favorite podcatcher, subscribe, and then you'll get downloaded uh, every show. That's right. Or you can subscribe for it at packetpushers.net. So check it out. All right, let's do the news we're here to do. Uh, first, Intel, they've released a roadmap for its IPU or infrastructure processing units through 2026. Uh, as with the DPUs and SmartNICs that Intel is competing against, its uh, IPUs are meant to offload network security and storage functions from CPUs. And we're going to talk about some highlights on the roadmap, including uh, Mount Evans, that's a 200 gigabyte ASIC-based processor. It's expected in 2022, and they've also got a roadmap on 400 and 800 gigabit ASICs. Yeah, so DPUs, I think... My instinct here is telling me that DPUs and the whole that whole market segment is going to be pretty big, and it's largely going to be driven by the hyperscalers who are going to drive the earliest versions of these, and then the enterprise will jump onto them later. And we have seen, for example, that uh, VMware announced Project Monterey back in VMworld 2020. Uh, they had an early access program in VMworld 2021 last year. We're coming up on VMworld 2022. Project Monterey is the VMware talking about their software consuming the resources of DPUs mm -hmm. uh, from whomever. So it could be uh, NVIDIA, it could be Intel, it could have been Pensando, which is now AMD. So knowing about Intel's roadmap will give you a chance if you're doing your strategic planning around technology, knowing that there's a second, third, and fourth generation coming out from Intel between now and 2026. Now, you probably don't want 800 gigabit Intel processor units in 2026 for most enterprises, 
but you know, maybe something better than the 25, 50 gigs that you've got today. Maybe you're looking at hundred gig, 400 gig, uh, they're sort of saying will come around 23, 24, and then you could expect a price, a reasonable pricing to arrive, say 25, 26, a couple of years later, three years later. Mm-hmm. And, um, so maybe you could start saying to yourself, well, we expect DPUs to have some premium pricing in the next three years. There'll be a lot of transition. So we might use them for, you know, immediate use cases or niche use cases where we have particular performance issues and then expect them to roll out, say, over the next five years to become standard technology, say, by 2027 or something like that, you know, as a standard fitting. Yeah, I agree that the the IPU DPU market is being driven by the cloud service providers who want to offload, you know, security functions, networking functions, storage from the CPU. So you Mm -hmm. get a a card to do that. Uh, Or if you've got, you know, an edge location where you're constrained by power and space and you don't want to have to put in a switch and a firewall, et cetera, you do this uh, on, a, on a smart NIC. Yeah, well, instead of appliances, you're talking about running entire network functions. Right. SD-WAN, firewalls, IPSs, threat detection engines, the whole lot can run on a, a NIC card, or conceptually something that plugs into the PCI bus. That means you don't have a secondary CPU, you don't have a power supply, you don't have another chassis that you have to accommodate, much less power just by you know, using uh, power available in a single server chassis or a single desktop chassis or whatever, some sort. And then there's also performance benefits because by having everything in the computer, it doesn't need to send data across the network. So then you don't need switch ports and so forth. So, uh, so it turns out Intel's IPU, as they call it, they call it an IPU because they want to pretend that it's somehow different from a DPU. <laughs> I think they, Today, they, they I, want to get that I from Intel in the branding. Yes, I think. Yeah, probably, but it's not. It's a DPU. It's exactly the same as everybody else's. It's a card. It's got a cluster of ARM cores on it, uh, as well as a bunch of uh, networking capabilities. If you you look around, you'll you'll see the things that you the resource maps and all that sort of stuff. But you're looking at a, you know, a PCIe SERDES, so that you're actually seeing the the Ethernet come up, go through a SERDES, then it goes into a 200 gig Ethernet MAC, and then you have a networking processor which does RDMA, NVMe, LAN processing does inline crypto, traffic shaping, all of that is in the silicon. And then off to the right, you have a general purpose uh, processing complex, which is ARM cores, uh, memory modules. You've got DDR4, probably DDR5 memory modules, as well as another crypto accelerator and so forth. So it's actually a full-on computer on a card, plus a, a sort of like a, a switching ASIC as well. Um, but a two-port, usually two-port switch sort of thing with a bunch of uh, hardware acceleration engines on board. So it is very much today focused at the hyperscale markets and the Mount Evans, which is the code name for Intel's IPU, which is the the true DPU product. Um, They have been developing it with Google. They did announce two over the last two years, a series of announcements with Google that they've been developing it jointly. And now this product will be turning into a consumer product. So it's not as far out as I might've thought in that Intel was quite far behind, say for example, Nvidia's Bluefield 2 and soon Bluefield 3. Uh, Intel is probably two, three years behind Mellanox, which is not too bad, perhaps, but they, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but they're also maintaining their SmartNIC line, which I thought was interesting. Um, they're maintaining their FPGA. So this is the card that runs FPGAs. The FPGAs have everything built into a single chip, which is a programmable chip, and they're going to sustain those for another two or three years. My guess there, Drew, customers out there are using them, got them, don't want to see them disappear overnight, want some time to transition. And so they're sort of saying, we're going to hold on to it, but the warning is here. It's not going to get past 100 gig. That seems reasonable to me, yes. that They've got a yeah, legacy right. group they need to support, yeah. That's right. So now we have to go through the software. Now that we see not know what the hardware looks like, 
the next the battleground for the marketing war turns into what the software looks like. Are we going to see what are the software APIs for this going to be? Is it going to be P4, DPDK, IPDK? So Intel's promoting their uh, infrastructure programmer development. We see from NVIDIA, they've got something called Doka. Right. No doubt AMD will have their own. Are we going to see a fracturing around these DPUs where each vendor has their own API like we do with the Switch ASICs? And we, you know, we have Broadcom with their APIs and we have Marvell with their APIs and, you know, all of the, the ASICs are different. And then, so we end up with an operating system like Sonic, which, you know, and the ASIC makers have to make the kernel modules, but this one's got, so, you know, it would be better, I think, if the DPUs could all converge on a core set of shared functionality, but uh, more likely we're going to see a fragmentation in the market as the as uh the vendors attempt to dominate the market, waste time, waste money, waste resources, and eventually it'll all converge around a standard. Industry. Right. Well, the, the people whose time and money they're going to waste are the independent software vendors or folks like a, a Palo Alto or a security company who wants to build a firewall to run on one of these cards. Mm. They're going to have to run, make it run on Doka from NVIDIA, Intel's ID, IDPK, uh, Pensando's, et cetera. That's where all the effort is going to mm. happen. Hopefully we as consumers can just you know, buy whatever card and run yeah. whatever software, but that work will have to happen by somebody. Yeah. Yeah, if you are talking to the vendors, tell them to get it together and converge on a common API. <laughs> we don't need a dozen APIs for this. We just need, you know, just give us one API so that I can run my, you know, whatever it is I want to run from the from the ISV, you know, Palo Alto, 40 net code. If I want to run, you know, somebody's threat detection engine on the NIC or somebody's MPLS routing core on this, I don't want to have to keep rewriting it for each different vendor or find that I have to write a version of this for this because there's an enhanced functionality. And we'll talk about this in the next piece, actually. This is a nice segue into the discussion around Nokia and Microsoft Azure. Yeah, and that does bring to mind that it's likely going to be a cloud giant who says, hey, all you, uh, you know, DPU SmartNIC folks, get your act together. I want to buy whichever one of these I want, and I don't want to fuss around with your individual language. So let's get mm. a common set going and we'll lead to some kind of you know, uh, Sonic or whatever yeah. the uh, the Sonic shim that goes between the the, the uh, ASIC and Sonic is to to, yeah. to unify that. We'll see. It, it's going to need to have. It's going to have to be somebody uh, with could, significant market power to demand that. Could happen because a nick has to go into every server. Right. Whereas before with switches, there was just a few switches and it was Ethernet. Yes. And, you know, networking didn't matter. Maybe if it goes inside the server, the the hyperscalers will say we really want to see a converged standard here so that we can reuse stuff. And maybe we will. On the other hand, Google Azure and, you know, AWS are so different from normal people, <laughs> you know, from normal IT, right. that they just don't have the same requirements and can make anything work. So yeah. who knows? We'll All right. So speaking of Azure, uh, in a recent episode, we, know, uh, we noted Nokia had won a deal to provide switches to Microsoft Azure and the switches were going to be running the Sonic Network OS. Uh, a Deloro analyst has provided more insight into the details around that deal. Yeah, they basically say that they believe or they've been informed from their sources that it's 7250 IXR networking gear. And when you go and look up the Nokia website for the 7250s, you realize that this is not switching gear, this is routing gear. So this means that Nokia has seems to have displaced uh, maybe Juniper or maybe Arista in the edge routing or the high density routing capability. 7250 comes in a 1RU 4RU and 8RU chassis capability. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a much more strategic than I put out last week. It's not a uh, top of rack thing. Uh, however, it is the Broadcom. So it's not using Nokia's FP5 silicon, which is what they use with their SROS operating system, which is supposedly better and bigger. -er. 
obviously because Azure wants to use Sonic, and if it's running on Broadcom, maybe that's the way they want it. Right. Yeah, that was, I think, what what caught us is that Nokia is pushing its SR Linux uh, OS and then to say, well, we also are going to support Sonic. It's because they wanted to get a customer like Azure. Yeah, I think so. And these switches are going to run it. If it's a Broadcom chip, there's not going to be too much. And I think Microsoft's heavily committed to Sonic for itself. It doesn't want to get into running other people's operating systems because then it would have to write code and change their provisioning system. And it's also possible as a secondary impact that Broadcom has extended its ASIC with a number of proprietary extensions, which allow specific features that Azure may be using in their SDN tele- you know, operations. Maybe, you know, some queuing and buffering I've seen. There's some telemetry features and so forth. Now, most vendors don't write to consume those APIs and they don't pay the licensing fees mm. according for those features. So, you know, just because everybody's using you know, Broadcom chipsets, you know, Jericho or Jericho 2, 2 pluses or whatever, they're not necessarily paying the license fees for all of the ASIC features and to implementing them in code. So perhaps here, you know, there is a, a customized feature that, and or maybe it's just an operational considering. Uh, but I did note that IDC said our interviews have revealed that Arista is expected to remain the preferred supplier for Spine DCI applications during the 400 gig upgrade cycle. And, but also that Microsoft expects to go through major expansion. So maybe they just have so much spending, they just want to diversify supply. But my guess is we're seeing the Arista being displaced as the edge router. Uh, I know that Azure has been buying a lot of Juniper routers as well. And maybe what we're seeing here is a bit of a juggle here where Arista gets displaced and gets replaced by the Nokia 7250 for that routing capability, high volume, high end, high speed routing capability, not the, the land spine that I might have thought. Right. And of course, this is part of Azure's strategy in developing Sonic is that it can mm. get um, a variety of suppliers competing for that business. So we've now got Arista, Nokia, Juniper, and they also, the Delo report also mentioned Cisco as a potential competitor in here, all, you know, sort of uh, trying to court Azure for its business, which is what Azure wants. <laughs> Azure gets to choose. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I can have, who's got stock? <laughs> <laughs> Who loves daddy best today? Is, is it you, Arista? Is it you, Nokia? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's an interesting read, uh, the Delora report. We've got a link to it in the show notes. If you want to check it out, we'll move on. Uh, Juniper, they've announced that its Contrail SDN platform for creating virtual networks now integrates with Kubernetes. Uh, Contrail was originally designed for OpenStack. Juniper is now positioning Contrail as an SDN platform for cloud-native applications orchestrated by Kubernetes. Uh, yeah, this is interesting in that Contrail has been around for a while. Uh, it was originally developed to be a, a, a networking capability for containers. So for it to be back onto containers made me look a bit twice at this, Drew. Um, I think as far as I can tell, this is basically saying that we're unifying the OpenStack and the container networking into a single networking strategy or a single controller so that you can unify your OpenShift OpenStack and your Kubernetes on site into a single welded network. Is that the the way that you saw it? Uh, the way I saw it is that Juniper has recognized that Kubernetes has become the orchestration platform of choice for public clouds, for cloud native applications, and they want to be uh, the networking uh, interface for that. And so they said, you know, we're, we're still going to continue to support OpenStack, but Kubernetes is where all the action is and we need to be there if we want to be competitive in, you know, the hybrid cloud, multi-cloud market. I don't know if Kubernetes is where the action is. I think it's where the action's moving to. Yeah, where the action is going, yes. Yeah, slowly. It's more like if I don't have Kubernetes support, I'm not a tick on the tender. 
you know, that's well. I think for the the the, 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 the market they're pursuing, which you know, service provider, telco, cloud service provider, cloud giants, they are putting the effort into Kubernetes, and then and mm -hmm. Juniper wants to be there. This isn't. I don't anticipate a lot of enterprises being on Kubernetes quite yet, or you know, needing mm -hmm. the, what they can get from Contrail yet. So yeah. Yeah. But if you're making a decision to do this now, like if you've got a public cloud and then you've got an on-prem cloud, how do you bring them all together? And this tool seems to do both. And if you've got OpenShift, got some OpenStack over there and you've got some VMware yes. and you've got some, you know, you're going to start to be able to put this control or plane over the top of all of that and start to unify them together in some meaningful way. Right. And they're also hearing, Juniper said in an interview I had with them, that they're hearing from customers that they are getting these, you know, Kubernetes nodes popping up everywhere and need some kind of unifying organizing principle around them. And so Contrail can be that, at least from the networking perspective. Yeah, I would think so. And there's so, I mean, there's this burgeoning number of nodes in the network. Like if every smart NIC, every DPU becomes a complex center of networking functionality, how do you keep all that together? Right. It's going to get a lot harder. Yeah. yeah. So a little bit of detail. Contrail is acting as a container network interface or CNI in Kubernetes. It's providing virtual routing, virtual switching, load balancing. Uh, can also integrate uh, with Juniper's containerized version of the SRX firewall if you want security and micro-segmentation. And part of Contrail's initial value proposition was that service chaining element where you could virtually link up a variety of services uh, in VMs and now in containers. Mm. They talk a lot about, you know, there's a lot more features in they can reasonably discuss. And I actually think that's true. Um, you know, there's so many features in there in terms of, you know, micro-segmentation and multi-tenancy virtual network topologies, yeah. virtual networks, ingress load balancing, namespace isolation. There's a lot going on inside of uh, this sort of stuff. So it's very hard for us to give a, a, a perspective on the feature set here. I will say uh, two things. I haven't heard anyone say anything about OpenStack in a long time. It may just be because that's not a market we focus on. So, <laughs> But I also haven't heard much about Contrail either. So I think this is also Juniper kind of putting some new life into Contrail. Seeing, I think we're seeing in the market uh, a greater appetite for multi-cloud networking, hybrid cloud networking. And so Juniper's like, wait, we've got something here. Let's, let's try to leverage what yeah. we've got and, and bring it to Kubernetes for that. Red Hat's doing good business around OpenShift, mm -hmm. which is yeah, Kubernetes, <laughs> OpenStack, uh, OpenStack, and Kubernetes. Yeah. yeah. So there's something going on. Don't know what it is. Like you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we will have links in the show notes with more details if you want to find out. Um, we're going to take a short break to tell you about the news from Nokia's Digital Sandbox. Uh, it's part of Nokia's Fabric Services system for data center network automation. With the Digital Sandbox, you can create a real-time model of your network by automatically extracting state and configuration data from your leaf and spine switches. So network engineers can use this model to test and validate changes and updates before deploying them in production. As part of Nokia's Fabric Services system for intent-based networking, the Digital Sandbox supports all phases of the life cycle of the fabric, including day two plus operations, by ensuring that any changes to the network will meet the engineer's intent. The Sandbox can also reduce problems that arise from misconfiguration and human error because engineers can test changes safely against a real-time network model. And because the Digital Sandbox virtualizes state and config, you can run your model on one or more standard off-the-shelf servers. And the Digital Sandbox supports NetOps environments that are building out CI, CD pipelines. If you want to learn more, listen to the sponsored Tech Bytes episode from May 9th, or go to nokia.ly slash fabric dash services dash system. That's nokia.ly slash fabric dash services dot dash system. We thank Nokia for being a sponsor. 
Uh, back to the news, Cisco, they're adding new AI and machine learning driven features to their wireless portfolio. The new features include wireless 3D analyzer that shows RF propagation in three dimensions rather than two dimensions. So you get a better sense of how radio signals are actually propagating in actual space as opposed to that traditional top-down 2D map. Yeah, I took a look at this. It's really interesting. Uh, the DNA wireless stuff is actually adding mapping features. What's interesting that sort of five to eight years ago, doing network mapping was actually a completely separate toolkit. And you would actually walk around with a survey box and, and survey the wireless mm -hmm. and then do whatever. Mm -hmm. And now what we're seeing is that this becomes a standard feature of Wi-Fi deployments. I think Aruba uh, talked about something similar at their conference and so uh, and we've seen it coming out from other vendors. Um, the DNA software is seems to be improving quite a bit. Uh, one thing I noticed, Drew, is that this is actually a free upgrade. That is, it actually says in the announcement, if you already have a DNA Advantage subscription in wireless, along with DNA Center, you'll get to utilize these features at no additional cost to you. I was a bit surprised by that, but good, well done, Cisco. I, I think that's smart of Cisco because obviously this is tied into DNA Center, which is a much broader, you know, campus automation and orchestration tool that, uh, that covers wired and wireless. So if they, they're looking mm -hmm. to get buy-in, I think, and so adding freebies like this makes sense. Uh, there are other features like uh, what they call AI-enhanced radio resource management. So it essentially analyzes two weeks of RRF data to look for patterns like usage trends or interference, and then we'll automatically optimize the radios to meet usage trends. You can also get automated advisories on underperforming APs, and they've got an on-demand packet capture feature where you can pack, click a button and start getting packet captures off of an AP. That is a good feature because packet captures on wireless networks is incredibly difficult to do well or to the point where you can actually trust your cap capture is actually the thing that you're trying to capture. Mm -hmm. um, but I did note a blog post this week from Michael McNamara who was saying that dynamic channel assignment on Cisco WLC 5520s uh, it actually changed the AP from using the channels that he had assigned to separate channels. And then suddenly some of his uh, rather unusual IoT devices, and there's a blog post, you can go and read it in the thing, suddenly didn't work. And it turns out that these IoT devices did not support the spectrum that the channels that reassigned. So there's a bug here in the AI where the AI says, well, I, this channel is overloaded, so I will reassign this band from mm -hmm. here to here. Mm -hmm. But if you've got devices in there that can't speak the new one, uh, and this is where you need either it's just something that happens if you're using dynamic and you've just got to live with it, or maybe you need AI to say, hang on, I just changed from here to here, but now all of my devices suddenly <laughs> stopped working. Maybe I need to change it back. Yes. It's just something to note. Yeah. Okay. That's a, an interesting counterpoint and one of the issues potentially with these automated changes. Yeah. If there are. Yeah. It's just an unlucky it's thing. It's one of those it's things just, where there's know, like dependencies. It, yeah. That you may not be aware of. Yeah. yeah. And it is one of those things where the five gigahertz spectrum that's allocated in the US is not the same as what's allocated in the rest of the world. If I'm making these smaller volume devices, maybe I just don't support the extended spectrum that the US has allocated because it's the, you know, whatever, because I it doesn't matter most of the time. And lo and behold, you get this sort of edge case. A link to Michael McNamara's blog is in the show notes. All right. Uh, moving on, chat apps have overtaken email as the preferred tool for workplace communications. That's according to an IT survey by Spiceworks Ziff Davis. The survey of 1,000 IT professionals in North America and Europe found that 51% of respondents now prefer chat apps such as Slack or Teams for office communication over email. And I'll note that the same survey from 2019, only 31% preferred real-time messaging. So we are seeing a growth here. 
People can change, Drew. People can change. <laughs> it's not just the nerds adopting new tools. I think it's <laughs> to be fair, COVID probably did shove it down their throats and they didn't really get much of a choice. Yes. But I think the the point here is that we've talked a lot about distributed work and I run heavy strategy. Jonah and I have done two shows out of 20 on distributed work and how to approach it tactically and strategically. And it, I think, you know, we all know that this idea of distributed work is here to stay in large part, not, it's not the futures here. It's just not evenly distributed. And, but that for distributed work to be useful and viable, you need new tools and new ways of working. You can't sit there and say, I've got email and a phone. That's all I need for remote work. That's not how it works. You need video chats for certain types of meetings. You need chat channels. And I was reading uh, different pieces about this in the, in the art survey. And they said like, uh, uh, chat is for sentences and email is for paragraphs and things like that. And I thought that's that's a pretty good summary. I, I like that. That is, yeah. I mean, that sort of aligns with what I was thinking that I, I agree the pandemic probably had a lot to do with this because when you were in the office and you had a quick question, you could just, you know, go to the next cubicle, stick your head over and ask the question. Um, when you're not in the office, you want a quick way to do that. Slack is much more, or these chat apps are much more informal than an email, which I still think carries a little bit of that formality where you have to say, Hello, how are you? Hey, here's my question. Thanks, etc. With the Slack, it's yeah. just like brrr, and you're done. So honestly, so much better <laughs> than people line. When I was, I used to have people lined up at my desk, and it would just be so much easier if I could have just allocated ten minutes out of every hour to respond back and say no, yes, get lost, go here. This is the URL. Ask so and so. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. I'll also say yeah. I, we, I'm guessing there's probably a generational change coming as well. In that, I think texting is the mm. preferred communication method for young people, at least based on my own children. And I think chat mimics the, the brevity and the informality and immediacy of text, uh, so it duplicates that experience. I think everybody's getting used to it. I think so. Like, yeah, you know, absolutely. It's just yeah. people are getting used to texting on phones and then starting to realize that chat is a version of that. To some extent. So. Right. And based on my own kids, when I say, can you just send me an email? They sort of roll their eyes like, oh, whatever. Do you want to carry your pigeon, dad? <laughs> you don't understand. It's a to -do, an email is a to-do list. <laughs> yes. I know. I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> well, yeah. That's how I do it. Fit in with me. I don't care what you want. Exactly. <laughs> All right. The link's in the show notes if you want to check out the survey for yourself. We'll move on. Uh, Bloomberg's reporting that Shanghai may finally come out of COVID lockdown by May 20th. The Chinese government wants three consecutive days of zero new cases in the city, a target that it has yet to reach. And I think we're bringing this up because Shanghai's lockdown has had uh, a global impact on supply chains, business, and so on. Yeah, I was looking at, a, I follow a bunch of people around supply chain topics, and someone posted the image of shipping and just off the shores of Shanghai port, there was hundreds and hundreds of ships just moored, mm. waiting to unload, mm -hmm. uh, presumably empty containers and load up to ship more goods to the rest of the world. Um, and of course, the port is closed because of the lockdown. The lockdown is part of China's zero COVID policy. Uh, basically, they work to the strategy of if there's any COVID cases, then everything goes to an immediate lockdown. Uh, that worked really well in the early days, but perhaps now um, we've seen the strategies pursued by other countries where they rely on vaccination and masking when it's necessary mm. and so forth, and I, uh, more limited scopes of isolation uh, because now these people in, in Shanghai have been locked up for six weeks. Right. Six weeks right. in your house. And when I say locked up, I mean locked up. No public spaces, no going to shops. Um, and in the, the whole system is starting to collapse with food is now getting hard to get medicines. People are running out of medicines. It's actually very difficult and it's being enforced by a very large force of, uh, policing 
uh, and people going around testing. And if they test somebody in your building as COVID positive, they may actually just basically take everybody in that entire building right. and put them into a COVID camp. Yes. So there's some really extreme stuff going yeah. on. Quite, you know, by our standards, not the way things are done. And, you know, you can imagine the the impact of society. But right now, uh, there was a joke I heard a couple of years ago, and it said, why didn't 3D printing take off? And the answer, of course, was because Shanghai, it's easier to get things made in Shanghai. <laughs> it is, a, you know, the whole of Shanghai. China is a 3D printer for the Western world. Uh -huh. So there is a lot of problems with the supply chain are based around this, and we're going to see much longer before this six-week, you know, but as soon as the lockdown stops, I'm hoping we'll be able to start seeing some light change around the supply chain, and then we'll start to see of course, the impacts around the war. So supply chain, not going to get better anytime soon. Yeah, and we should note that, uh, you know, according to the Bloomberg story, once the lockdown is lifted, it's not like they just switch on 100% to everything's open all the time. They're going to gradually and slowly start bringing back services and people and allowing folks out to get to places. So it's not even like flipping a switch. There's going to be a ramp up period after the lockdown is over as well. That does sound wise, you know, insofar as... E you don't want suddenly for COVID to get out of control. Right. Because <laughs> everybody's pent up six weeks in the yeah. house. Like, yeah, let's yeah, go. You might want to have a, and you also might want to avoid stampedes and, exactly. you know, yes. uh, overreactions from people racing to get back out in public. So, right. yeah. All right. Link in the show notes if you want to read the article for yourself. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Cloudflare. We're talking about simplifying WAN connectivity and security. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking WAN architectures and how to simplify and secure them with sponsor Cloudflare. Our guests are Amit Naik and Annika Garbers from Cloudflare. Amit and Anik, welcome to the podcast. And so Cloudflare announced Magic WAN, which is your uh, WAN solution back in 2021. Can you give us a quick overview of the service and the customer problems you're trying to solve? Yeah, Magic WAN allows customers to use Cloudflare's global Anycast network to connect any source or destination on their private network. So that can be a data center, a cloud property, a user device, and it's an alternative to traditional forms of connectivity, things like MPLS or IPsec tunnels uh, going over the internet. So does that make you sassy? Are you adding security to that or is this just the connectivity component? Yes, absolutely. The security is a huge part of the value proposition. Right. The traffic lands at the closest Cloudflare location and we apply those security policies right there to be able to uh, do that and optimize the traffic flow. Okay, so we'll talk about the security stuff in a minute. I just want to get down to how we connect to you because Cloudflare is not a traditional WAN provider in the sense that you have pops all over the world and I have to get my traffic into your network. Can you give me a quick overview of how I would do that? Sure. So we're agnostic to any method you want to use to connect traffic to Cloudflare. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of different options depending on which of those sources or destinations we talked about you are using. So if you're connecting from a data center, that could look like a direct connection, either mm -hmm. directly with our network, if you're in the same facility or through a, a virtual connect, uh, connection option through a partner. Mm -hmm. That could also be something like an Anycast tunnel over the internet. So we use standards-based DRE or IPsec tunnels but we provide one IP address on the Cloudflare end that gives you automatic connectivity to all of our POPs in over 270 cities across the world. And then from remote users, they can use uh, the Cloudflare device client that acts as a forward proxy to get traffic to our network. So lots of options depending on how you want to connect. Right, and that includes SD-WAN partners as well, if I remember rightly. You've actually got partnerships with certain companies to actually connect their stuff in. Yes, exactly. So if you've already deployed SD-WAN throughout your network, 
and you want to use that hardware, those boxes, their portals that you're already familiar with using to be able to connect to Cloudflare even uh, easier than just setting up an IPsec tunnel, you're able to do that as well. Does that imply that Magic WAN is kind of better than the internet? One thing that we see is there's a lot of companies setting themselves up and saying, send your traffic to us and we'll make it route faster. Are you asserting the same sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a couple of different methods that we can use to accelerate traffic over Cloudflare's network versus just sending it over the public internet. We've built our own private backbone that spans across the entire world that we're able to use uh, to to leverage to route traffic between locations. And then we also use telemetry-based routing to make smarter decisions for how to get traffic from point A to point B then the traffic would be able to route just over the internet using sort of standard BGP routes. So 100%, that's part of the value prop. And can I get to, you know, if I'm, say, a client in a branch office, can I get to, you know, uh, traditional applications that might be, you know, client server apps in a, in a company HQ as well as the public cloud? 100%. Any source or destination that you want to connect, you know, public on the internet or private within your network, uh, mm-hmm. you can set up a tunnel to Cloudflare to get to it. But it's just at any cost. So I can send my outbound connection to the same IP address anywhere in the world and I'll be on the Cloudflare network. Exactly. And that makes management super easy, right? You don't Mm. have to think about connecting to Cloudflare in Atlanta and Beijing and London and Dubai. It's just connect to Cloudflare and the traffic will automatically land at the closest location to its source. I imagine there's some resilience there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. That allows us to take, you know, any pop on our network uh, down for maintenance or uh, an upgrade or a route around congestion or other problems on the internet that might be between one Cloudflare location and a customer's network. And none of those changes impact our ability to deliver traffic to customer networks because there's always another option. So if we look at modern enterprise applications, there's a fair bit of consumption of SaaS, right? It's in a, in a or typical organization, majority of the applications tend to be SaaS with some yeah. private cloud applications. What's nice about this architecture is is all of that's available in one place. Whether you're going to an internet-based application or a private application, you get to it the same way. Because if you look at the recommendations coming from folks like Microsoft, uh, Microsoft 365, for example, they'll tell you to break out everything locally at the branch. Right, they'll tell you, please don't backhaul everything to the data center (laughs) and, and, uh, and get it straight out to the internet. So it's something like Magic WAN, depending on where, where your apps are sitting, whether they're on the public internet, which by the way, may be on the Cloudflare network itself, hmm. or whether it's a private application that you're hosting, uh, it takes the same path. Well, I guess that comes from that content delivery network is you have pops in a lot of these data centers where the SaaS people are, and you've got good access to those resources. And not only good access, some of these SaaS applications are actually on the Cloudflare CDN. So if we're talking about not backhauling traffic, does that mean if I'm, you know, a, a client in a branch office or, or at home and I'm uh, using some SaaS apps, but I'm also doing some, you know, apps in an HQ, does that mean it sounds like I'm able to set up multiple sessions depending on the application? Is that the idea? You don't even need multiple sessions. It's all over the same connection, right? So once you connect to the Cloudflare network and you connect your local, local uh, data center, uh, you can get to either a private application or a public application, all based on uh, our secure web gateways right there. So you don't have to go to a different data center, or a different pop to uh, to get private applications versus public apps. Okay, so the first place I'm hitting is that Cloudflare pop. And then depending on the destination, it's either going to my HQ or out to a SaaS application or the public cloud. Exactly. Yeah, so maybe we should talk about then that security element, because if you are, I guess, are you brokering that traffic that's going to the pop and then you can do security things? So there's several sort of layers of security policies that we can apply to that traffic once it's at Cloudflare's network. 
the first thing that happens is that all the traffic goes through sort of a traditional network firewall. And so customers can apply uh, policies to all of that traffic and the, uh, the, the control is from sort of one single plane, but then the policies apply everywhere. So any Cloudflare location where the traffic lands and any server that it lands on, their security policies are gonna be applied right there. When you say traditional firewall, we're talking, you sort of stateful inspection where I'm looking at port and protocol as opposed to an L7 or application firewall? Exactly, so pretty much any packet characteristic. And then there's also functions of uh, traditional network firewalls that customers can also apply things like getting packet captures to get visibility of all of that traffic, pretty much all there running on every server. Okay, and you said there are other, I heard secure web gateways in there as well? Yep, so then after that layer of network firewall security is applied, Customers can choose to upgrade their traffic to more sophisticated, kind of finer grain filtering and move in a direction that's closer to maybe a zero trust security model. So mm -hmm. we can upgrade traffic uh, that's headed out to the internet to go through Cloudflare's secure web gateway. And then in that case, you get more uh, sophisticated filtering, things like URL filtering, malware detection, all those kind of functions that you would think of associated with a secure web gateway. And enabling that is just one click from the Cloudflare dashboard to, to get that upgrade. Okay. Um, how about application-aware, uh, like an L7 capability? Is that something in the in the uh, security service? Yes, for sure. So it just depends on kind of how much security you want and over which traffic flows. You can layer all of those things in together across all of that traffic. Um, one of the things that we discussed when we were prepping for the call is that you ask you can, can transfer firewall policies into Cloudflare. Does that imply I can literally you're able to read my firewalls, or you're just saying I can move my firewalling functionality into the into the Cloudflare uh, functionality? So what we've seen many customers do is take their policies, so they'll open up their firewall config and either download the list if they're able to get it in sort of a standard syntax, something like a wire filter, and just upload that to Cloudflare. They can mm. use our API or Terraform to manage all their firewall policies with sort of infrastructure as code. And then when they're able to do that, then that basically transfers those rules so that the traffic, if there's say malicious traffic that's uh, uh, sort of headed toward their network from the outside or they're doing network segmentation, hmm. it all happens at Cloudflare's edge. And so that bandwidth doesn't get anywhere close to their network. It's not you know, using right. up that capacity that they might have at those locations. Yeah, it, it all goes back to like, where would you rather filter your malicious traffic, Greg, right? In the hmm. cloud before it ever comes anywhere close to your network or after <laughs> it's already on your network. Yeah. And once people, once our customers realize that they can actually do this filtering in the cloud, yeah. uh, on the Cloudflare network, they, they opt to do that. And then they sort of, sort of migrate all the policies out to the cloud. Well, I think there's a second angle here, which is that there's a single configuration point for my firewall policy. I configure it in my Cloudflare dashboard, or as you said, using Terraform or, you know, programming, hitting the API. But once that policy's in place, it's there anywhere. So even if I bring up a new branch, I don't have to reset the firewall policy. It's just going to be there. Yeah, so the nice thing about something like Magic WAN and Magic Firewall and, and, and Cloudflare Network Services, the way a network architecture works, it's very location agnostic. Mm -hmm. So you just focus on the policies, right? You don't have to worry about what region you apply it to, where your firewall is, how many discrete firewall elements you have to manage and keep up to date. Mm. You get rid of all of that and you just think you're just focused on the policies and you're managing security, what yeah. you should be is just what you should be doing. I don't have to worry about inbound and outbound interfaces. All I need to know is source IP exactly. and destination IP or, you know, this app to this app or that application to that service or whatever it is, becomes a lot simpler. Does that lead into then a discussion around zero trust network access? Are you able to integrate with the identity providers then? 
Absolutely. So we have integrations with leading identity providers and we're able to take an identity aware policies, apply them to our secure web gateway. Uh, so, so users have access to uh, certain specific resources based on who they are, What's the hell? We also integrate with endpoint protection uh, mm -hmm. platforms. So, uh, what's the health of their endpoint? Are they on a managed device, unmanaged device? Where in the world they're located? So, we're able to apply really fine grained granular policies uh, for ZTNA. So, this is where clients, so this is where desktops, remote desktops, or you know, users that are working in distributed nature would connect to the Cloudflare network first, and the identity provider provide. You know, you have an identity provider, zero trust network access. So, it becomes a VPN replacement or a remote access replacement in that sense, very loosely. Absolutely, absolutely, right? So uh, whether your users are at home or in the home office or traveling or, or back in the office, they get a, a uniform set of policies that mm. just work everywhere. We've seen customers using these technologies is because you can kind of layer them. What we're doing is giving people that might have more of a traditional or, or legacy network architecture today, a bridge to zero trust. So they can connect to Cloudflare using uh, kind of the standards and technologies that they're familiar with, things like IPsec or direct connectivity. But then we give them the ability to transition to more application level, user level policy and routing control with Cloudflare. So it's kind of a, a path to a more sassy mm. architecture model. Now, if I'm in the new age of working where I'm at home X number of days and in the office X number of days, and I've got that client piece uh, on my device that I'm taking to work and, and home with me, do I still get that uh, policy element that travels with me and it's aware that now I'm in the office and so, you know, my policy, I may have a different policy than when I'm at home or in a coffee shop? Yep, exactly. The, the idea is that as a user, your experience should be the same regardless of where you are. So if you're in a coffee shop or if you are sitting in the office or you're at home, your experience and your ability to access the applications that you need in order to do work should be the same. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, maybe we are applying uh, the, the same level of security if you're on an untrusted network versus a trusted network. For example, right. we might mm. have higher security applied, but as a user, your experience will be the same and it's sort of transparent that that's happening under the hood. Mm. I guess that's what I was after. There's a, uh, there's, uh, I can have different policy gradations based on the location and who I am. And then the, you'll apply the appropriate security controls. Mm -hmm. And things like your device, right? When the last time you logged into things was, all of those aspects can factor into it. Okay. What about processing speed? Like there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of activity being done. And if I think about all this, there's all these steps being added. Is it fast? Yeah, this is one of the most exciting aspects, I think, for networking nerds is traditionally when you're trying to spec out a hardware appliance or an MPLS line or something like that, you have to think about the amount of bandwidth that you need. What are your throughput requirements? And with Cloudflare, essentially because of our architecture and the way that we load balance traffic automatically across all of the servers within one location and then between locations worldwide, you actually don't have to think about any of that. It just sort of scales up. And so we are able to offer really sort of carrier grade service to mm. pretty much everyone for all of these security policies and all of this connectivity. There's customers pushing, you know, multiple mm. hundreds of gigabits per second, uh, per second of traffic through Cloudflare's network with no impact on their performance. So scaling, so you can vertically scale, get up to, you know, hundreds of gigabits of remote access capability. But, and we talked about how the backbone speeds it up, but does all this processing and inspection and zero trust, does that have a performance hit? Does that slow down or is it distributed as well and operate to like to the customers notice? So one of the nice things about doing all of this in one place is we can do single pass inspection. And in that single pass, we can apply all of these uh, controls that, that we talked about. 
Uh, so you're not sending your, your traffic on a scenic route across multiple pops for all the different services, right? So it gets to one data center, all the services, it gets to a server, all the services are right there. And uh, you avoid the additional network latency that you would have in other solutions where you have secure web gateway in one place, you have private access in another place, you have you may have CASB in a third place, and then mm. your, your traffic actually has to travel between those pops and, and you know, incurs additional latency. So with Cloudflare, you don't have that problem. Everything's in one place. Mm. And I guess, you know, there's also a lot of other things that Cloudflare does. You're not just a magic WAN company, you know, providing this WAN backbone service and security with this SASE. You're also doing a whole bunch of other things. So there, there is some other aspects here to consider out where Cloudflare could be a multi-service supplier, but we're just focusing on this one product today. Absolutely. So one thing we are, we are we're starting to talk about is sort of the uh, the, the coming together of SASE and application services, right? Where enterprises mm -hmm. need to stand up private apps, both for their employees and for customers. And uh, well, we have all this all those uh, CDN and web web application security services on the mm -hmm. network as well. So it becomes really easy to integrate. Well, it becomes even simpler for networking people. They do DNS as well as DDoS, as well as content delivery, like caching and security and all that sort of stuff. And if you're already there doing this, it actually makes sense to have your DNS in one place so you don't have like things like <laughs> domain registration and DNS servers and, and all this sort of stuff. It actually becomes, you know, a, a combined provider for this sort of stuff does have some capabilities for, for customers in terms of purchasing. Totally. And the more we see companies adopting cloud and sort of multi-cloud, poly-cloud strategies, the more important that single control plane for your security and connectivity mm. is going to be, right? If you're, you're, uh, you know, your application guys decide to spin up another cloud provider because they want to use some best-in-class feature for one specific application, you don't have to think about managing an entire separate security stack for that now. You can just connect that traffic through Cloudflare and use the same policies that you have already configured for your other destinations. We like to think of Cloudflare as the operating system for your business. That's yeah. a nice way to end it, I think. If folks want to get more information about how to uh, explore or investigate Cloudflare, where would you send them? Yeah, if you want to learn more, go to cloudflare.com slash packet pushers and you can get a customized demo of everything we just discussed and, and reach out to us and we're happy to talk more. All right, that's uh, cloudflare.com slash packet pushers and I went and checked out that site myself and it looks like you're also doing some giveaways. So if you're interested in some goodies, you can go check that out as well. Uh, Amit and Anika, thank you for being here. Uh, and thanks as always to our listeners uh, for also being here. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, watch us on uh, YouTube, listen to us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>